Uh, today we're going to look at a, a new section. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, we finished a section last week where Je- Jesus' focus is this is what it looks like to be a follower of mine. In the next couple of chapters, the, in, it, the pace picks up. There's a lot more intensity with Jesus' travel and there's a lot more intensity in his message. He's really pushing people uh, to respond to him. So we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 17. The words will be on the screen. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. We're going to pause there. So what's going on, Jesus? Here's a picture of where he's going. Here's a map. Uh, Jesus is up north and he's headed to Jerusalem. And that little red line, that's, a, that's the road that he's traveling on. Normal for a Jew to bypass Samaria. There's a lot of bad blood between uh, Jews and Samaritans, so it's normal to travel around. And Jesus is on the border between those two regions. You can see there in Luke 9, there was a time where Jesus tried to go through Samaria. If you remember that, we probably talked about that four or five months ago. He couldn't. They didn't want him to come through because he was headed to Jerusalem, which is that star down there at the bottom. So that's just to kind of orient you into what's going on, what's going on. Jesus is traveling around Samaria in an effort to get to Jerusalem. He knows that's where uh, his destiny lies. And he's approaching a city. We don't know which one. And there's ten guys outside the city. And from a distance, they call out to, the, to him, Master, have pity on us. Your Bible may say, have mercy on us. What they're asking for is to be healed. These guys have leprosy. Uh, when you hear the word leprosy, maybe not what we think of when we think of leprosy. Some type of skin condition make you scaly or splotchy or something like that. Uh, it was obvious. It was physical condition. But the real issues were social and religious. If someone had leprosy, they were treated, they were moved outside of the town or the village or the city where they lived. And you can see this from Leviticus 13. Here's how you responded to someone with leprosy. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. So that's the picture for these ten guys. They're wearing rags. They, their hair's messy. They've got this little thing over their face. And anytime anybody gets near them, they've got to yell unclean because if you touch them, then you're unclean as well. It's not about transferring the disease. It's about transferring this ceremonial or ritual uncleanness from one person to the next. And so they're living outside of whatever village this is. And they see Jesus approaching and they yell at him, have mercy on us or have pity on us. And Jesus's response is go show yourself to the priest. And what, they, what he's saying there is, if you're a leper, if you have whatever the skin condition is, and you were, it, it went away, you got better, you go show yourself to the priest, and the priest would sign off and say, yeah, you're healed. And that would then allow you back into the town, back into the village, back into the city. You needed that sign-off from the priest to confirm that you were, in fact, clean. And so Jesus says to them, while they still are leprous, go show yourself to the priest, and they go. So to me, when I think about these ten guys, there, there's some faith there. They call Jesus Master, and Luke, the only people who ever call Jesus Master are people who follow him. There are plenty of people who approach him who are not followers. They approach him because they're curious, or they approach him because they're hostile, or they approach him because they want something, and they tend to call him teacher. But in Luke, the only people who ever say Master 
are people who are actually following him. So that makes me think these ten guys, on some level, have a relationship with Jesus. They're following him, even if it's, it's at a distance, they're following him. And also, they turn around and leave, even though they have nothing's changed for them physically. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest, and there's enough faith there, enough trust there, that they say, okay, I guess whatever's going to happen is going to happen as we... When we get to the priest, they, they believe Jesus enough to do what he says, even though there hasn't been any change in their physical condition. So I think you see some faith there from these guys. And as they go, they're cleansed, they're made well. I was thinking about that for us and this whole idea. We don't get, I don't get the idea of having to live outside. That doesn't, it's not me. And I don't know if you can relate to that on any level. So for these ten guys... The, the understanding is they're living under a divine curse, that God is judging them, and therefore they have leprosy. Either they've done something or their parents have done something that have caused God to punish them with this physical condition. So they're living under that cloud in addition to being excommunicated from the synagogue, in addition to not being able to live in this community, in this town. It would be like you getting kicked out. Of your hometown. Can't be around your family, nothing. You're living by yourself or just with other people with a similar condition. That's, that's a difficult one for me to get my mind around, but maybe that's something that you can relate to on some level. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the way we approach God. It's Thanksgiving this week. It's nice that this passage fell during this week. But before we can actually get to Thanksgiving, we kind of, this is step one, which is, do we ask God for things? That's the thing that jumped out at me the most. These ten men, had there was enough something in them that when they saw Jesus, they were willing to ask him to have mercy on them or to have pity on them. And you may say, well, they had nothing to lose. But again, if you think about the mindset, in their understanding, they're cursed by God. And they absolutely have been excluded from the community and excluded from the worshiping Community. So for them, they must have seen something in Jesus. I don't know what. They must have seen something along the way that let them know, you know what, this guy tends to help people like us. He tends to help people who are outside the circle. He helps people who other people tend to walk past or disregard. And they also must have known enough about him to say he doesn't just help, he actually can. He has the power, the ability to actually do something about this. He's not just a nice guy. He's someone who can... Cure this condition that I have. So they saw something in his character and they knew something about his ability that motivated them to say, we need help. We need help. And my question to you this morning is, do you ever ask for help? Plain and simple. I'm not asking if you ever say, have mercy on me or be gracious to me. Those are loaded words. Just plain and simple. Do you ever say, God, help me? When was the last time? Is that a regular part of your interactions with the Lord? For some of us, it's really hard to ask for help. Multiple reasons. We think, well, if I'm asking for help, that's selfish. I'm focused on me, and God wants me to be focused on other people. I remember several uh, guys from different churches. We met with a government official here in Marietta a couple years ago. He's no longer in office. And we said to him, what can we pray for you about? And he said, well, I learned a long time ago. We all know we're not supposed to ask for things for ourselves. And we were going... I didn't learn that. That's not where do you, who do we ask for? In his mind, that was noble. It was selfless. To ask for something for yourself was selfish, and we're not supposed to be that way. 
That is not biblical at all. Jesus asked for things for himself, and so did Paul. They, he asked for something for himself. Take this thorn from me. Three times he asked. It's okay. Jesus, take this cup from me. It's okay to ask for things for yourself. Don't fall into this super spiritual trap that says if you're asking for yourself, that you're being selfish and God is not happy with that. Some of us, I think, we don't ask God for things because it's, uh, it's like three wishes. It's the genie in the bottle and we want to blow it on something small. If God's only going to answer a couple of prayers for me in my whole life, I'm not sure this is the one. You, when we think, you may not, they may not be going on up here, but I want you to think about what keeps you from asking God for things. Some of us, we think, well, you know what, now's not a good time. We treat them like we treat our parents. We've got to butter them up a little bit. We've got to make sure that think we've got our room clean and we've been taking out the trash. And then we can ask when they're in a good mood, whenever that is for the Lord. If you're, if you're approaching God with any of those things going on in t- consciously or subconsciously, what you're doing is you're approaching God based on your position. And you're thinking God responds to me based on my position. You're not assuming You're not living that God responds to you based on his disposition towards you, but based on your position before him. It's just not true. The Bible says that God is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he's quick or abounding in love. And so the reason he answers prayer in our life, the reason he helps us is not because of us. It's not because we have a really big problem and he's the only one who can fix it. It's not because we recycle. It's not because we've had quiet times. It's not, it's not for any of those reasons. It's not because we ask a lot. It's not because we say the right words. It's not because we pester him until he's tired of us. The reason God gets involved is because of who he is. Because he's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and quick and abounding in love. And if you approach him with any sense that says, God, get involved because... dot, dot, dot then most likely you're approaching him because of your position in front of him, not because of his disposition towards you. That's easy to get in our heads. I think it's very difficult to live that out long term, mostly because we don't have any other relationships that function that way. Every other relationship we have, even the best ones, there's a little bit of the quid pro quo going on. There's a little bit of this, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's very difficult to not keep score. Even in the healthiest relationships, very difficult to not keep score on some level. And then when it comes to our relationship with God, it's completely different. He never says, what have you done for me lately? Ever. He doesn't do that. He responds to us because of who he is, not because of what we've done. Not even because of our... These lepers had nothing to offer. They couldn't even get close to Jesus. They looked like Think about what they look like. Ragged clothes, unkempt hair. Who knew when the last time they had a shower was? Whatever this skin condition was, it wasn't pretty. They had nothing to offer. In their mind, they're cursed by God. They can't even enter the town. But they see something in Jesus' character, and they've heard enough about who he is in terms of his abilities, that they say, we're going to ask him. He's the kind of guy that helps people like us, and he's the kind of guy that has enough power to, to move in our situation. We're going to take communion. And as we do, I want you thinking about a couple of things. Communion is a lot of things, but it reminds us of a couple of things. Communion reminds us that God's taking care of our biggest issue, which is sin. And communion reminds us that God doesn't treat us based on our condition. He doesn't treat us according to our behavior, or our status, or our standing. 
He looks past all of those things. Communion reminds us of that. When we were still enemies, Jesus died for us. When we were still alienated from him, when we had nothing to offer, Jesus died for us. If you were here last week, we talked about that, that God turns towards us before we turn towards him. He's waiting for our response. He always initiates and we respond to him. Communion reminds us of that. Before we were born, before we were a glimmer in our parents' eye, Jesus died for us. And he does that to say, see, this is, this is how I feel. This is a demonstration of his love. Here's my heart towards you. So when I move towards you, it's not because of anything in you. It's because of who I am. He's dealt with our biggest problem. The biggest issue any of us have is we're alienated from God. And we can't figure out how to close the gap. Jesus' life and death and resurrection says, I'm going to take care of the sin issue. I'm going to, I'm going to make reconciliation possible for you. And communion is also an invitation, and this is what I really want you thinking about as you come forward for communion. Communion is an invitation. It says, communion says, he's given us his son, his most precious gifts. How much more will he not give us whatever it else it is that we need? Of course he will. If he's given you the thing that is the most precious to him, how can we not think he would give us these other things that we need or even things that we would say we don't need but we would like to see? The communion reminds us, a tangible reminder of what God has done for us. And it's this very tangible invitation where he's saying, come on, keep coming. We're going to, band y'all can come up. We're going to do two songs. We're going to have two songs of worship. And as we have these two songs, I want you thinking about this. I want you listening to these songs as God inviting you deeper. This first song especially, Come to the Rivers, what it says. I want you to hear God saying this to you, inviting you to come to him. So I'm going to pray. You guys can stand. We're going to go into worship. God, my prayer for everyone in the room, for our sixth graders, our high school students, our adults, people who are guests, friends, family, everyone in this room, God, my prayer is during these next couple of songs, each one of us would hear you in a way that makes sense to us. Say to us, come on, what do you have? What do you have? Where do you need me to get involved? We would hear invitation from you this morning. And I pray for those of us who wrestle mightily with asking you to get involved. Our things seem trivial or silly. We feel like we can handle it. We don't feel like we deserve you answering whatever it is. For whatever reason, you're our last resort and not our first option. God, I pray that you would begin to work more deeply in us. God, show us what it is to respond to you based on your initiation towards us. To respond to you based on this heart that says, I'm compassionate. I'm loving, I'm forgiving, slow to anger, I'm quick to love you specifically and personally. God, I pray that we would hear you speaking to us in these moments. In Jesus' name. Second half of the story. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. 
He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus said, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So, again, all ten, some level of faith, call him master. They leave when they haven't yet been healed. So there's some level of faith there. They ask Jesus Have mercy on us, be compassionate towards us, be kind toward us, help us. Then, again, some level of faith, they leave. In their leaving, as they're going, they're cleansed. They're physically healed. One of the guys comes back. The implication is we've got nine Jews and one Samaritan, and the Samaritan is the one who comes back, and he does three things. He praises God in a loud voice, nice symmetry there. This one who's only ever been able to say, unclean, unclean, now can praise God. We have him falling at Jesus' feet. That's a picture of submission and reverence. And then he thanks Jesus. In all the Bible, this is the only place where Jesus is personally thanked, if you can believe that. Every other time thanks is given, it's given to the Father. This is the only time we see Jesus individually and personally thanked. And I think some of that may be because the Samaritan Jesus didn't know any better. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there were some other places where they and the Jews disagreed in terms of their belief system. And I think he maybe just didn't even know. He just knew this guy's the one who helped me, and so I'm going to thank him. And, I, and then Jesus' response is, where's everybody else? Remember, it, we lose sight of it in this passage, but there's thousands of people traveling with Jesus. And I think he probably raises his voice here at this point and says, where are the rest of them? Weren't all of them healed? Most of the people who are following Jesus are Jews. And he's saying to them, where, 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 where are your guys? The guys that have, who've been waiting for the Messiah to come. The guys who should know better in terms of how to respond. Where are they? I don't think that they lose their healing or anything like that. But, what, but they don't respond to the grace that God is giving to them. And so they miss something. It's not enough to ask. It's not enough to receive. God is looking for a response. Ultimately, what God wants from us and what God wants for us is relationship with us. And the, ten guys experience God's grace. One guy is reconciled to God. What Jesus says to him is your faith has made you well, or literally your faith has saved you. Your faith has reconciled you to God. You're, you're, you're okay now. You're not just physically whole. You're spiritually whole as well. The other nine guys missed out on that. They didn't get to experience that because they didn't respond to the grace that God had given to them. I think it's easy for us, people who are not yet following Jesus, I think it's easy to dismiss the grace of God as a coincidence. We've talked about this before. I had a friend and still have him, and he he does stuff with computers. It's all kind of over my head, but the bottom line is he keeps people's data secure. And he had a breach. He's not a Christian. He had a breach in this, whatever this infrastructure that he's got. And he was freaking out because he was like, this is not, this is people's data. These are my clients. I'm done if we can't fix this. And he prayed this moment of desperation. God, you've got to help me. I'll do any, you just got to help me. And he fixed it. God didn't zap it or anything. It's, it fixed. It got fixed. Within the time frame that this man needed it fixed. It was pretty, I talked to him about a week later. It was pretty quick or pretty enlightening to me how quickly he decided it was just a coincidence. It's common for us to do that. For those of us who are following Jesus, our lives are so full and so fast. We sometimes, we're even, we, we do ask him to get involved. 
We do ask him for help, but then we move so quickly on to the next thing. We don't take a minute and thank him. We don't recognize his activity, not because we're trying to overlook it. We've just, we're on to the next thing. We've got so many things coming at us all the time to pause doesn't really enter the equation for us. This week is Thanksgiving. You know that. I don't know. I've been thinking about Thanksgiving. I'm not really sure where it fits kind of on our cultural radar. Christmas, obviously a huge holiday. For some reason, Halloween has become a holiday. I'm not sure. Why, I don't know what we're celebrating. Death or fear or gore or candy. Candy's worth celebrating. The rest of it, I don't, I don't know. So, no criticism. I'm not being judgmental. I don't get Halloween yard decorations at all, like skeletons coming out of your grass and setting up a graveyard and all that stuff. You have a year to think about whether you want to do that again. I don't... I don't... We've lost Thanksgiving. This guy who lives on my street, he lives across the street from me, he put up his Christmas tree already. It's Bo. <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. It's a problem with having big windows. <laughs> I'm joking. Culturally, we, we lose it. It's why? Because you don't, you can't, we can't market Thanksgiving. I can get you to buy stuff for Halloween and I can get you to buy stuff for Christmas. What are you going to buy for Thanksgiving? Cranberry sauce? There's nothing, there's no market there for anything. It's a day that says, I'm thankful for what I've got, not that says, I want something else. Our whole economy, looking at it in the best way, is based on want and desire. Looking at it in the worst way, it's based on greed and covetousness. But that's the engine that makes it run. People wanting things. It's Halloween and Christmas. Thanksgiving is saying, no, I'm good. I'm thankful for what I have. And I don't know where that fits in your heart. Not, I don't know. I don't know if you would say that's a value for you, if that's a practice for you, if you're someone who you would say, yeah, I try to live a life of thankfulness and gratefulness. We would all say that. Those of you who are parents, you probably try to instill that in your children. But I do think it's difficult. I think it's really difficult to do that. And so what I want us to do, this guy, we see this Samaritan, this foreigner, he speaks to us. He goes back to Jesus. He praises God in a loud voice. He falls at his feet and he thanks him. And so what we're going to do, we're going to close our service this way. First, we're going to thank God. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to pray corporately. So I'm going to open us, and then you're going to have a chance from your seat to say a prayer of thanksgiving. And here are the rules. It's got to be a simple sentence. No compound sentences. No run-on sentences. No semicolons. None of that. God, I thank you for fill in the blank. That's it. We want to give everybody a chance. It'll be, obviously, we're not passing around a microphone. If you talk on top of somebody, don't worry about it. God can understand. I know that can be awkward, but just plow through uh, if that happens. And I would encourage you, as much as you're willing in a public setting, to be specific about what you're thanking God for. Uh, it's, It's good. I think... Specific prayers get specific answers, and they deserve specific thanks. And so if God has moved specifically in your life, I'd encourage you, again, without, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable with what you're sharing in a room of 200 people, but uh, be as specific as you can. And then after that, the band's going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a time of worship. So I'm going to open, and then I want you just to feel comfortable from your seat. God, I thank you for 
Two things that are fine, to thank God for who he is and to thank God for what he's done. Neither is better than the other. Uh, you just, whatever God kind of stirs in your heart. So, Lord, I pray now as we thank you that you would, this would be more than just a couple of minutes on the week of Thanksgiving, that you do a work in our heart, God, and that we would become a thankful people in the places where we're not. And for many of us, I really th- I think it's our desire to, to live uh, lives of thankfulness. We're just busy, and, it, we're, and things are fast. And as soon as one thing gets done, we're on to the next thing. And so maybe just being quiet here for a minute, God, just remind us of the places where you've worked in our life the last week, the last month, the last six months. And as things begin to come to your mind, you, just, you can share those out loud. Amen. That was good. Whoever thanked God for their husband, all the wives, I think we're going to echo that. We just wanted to cut that off a little quick before all the wives started talking about how awesome we were. So <laughs> thank you for leading with that. There's a guy, Second Kings chapter 5. There's a guy named Naaman. He's an Aramean. He's from A-R-A-M. He's from Aram. He's a leader, a prince, and he's, uh, he's got leprosy. There's some... Technically, there's a, there's a treaty between Israel and Aram, but there's some bad blood there. And, 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 and um, Naaman has an Israelite girl as a slave in his house, and she tends to his wife. Naaman has leprosy. Remember, you can see that. And she says, there's a guy in our country who can heal you. And so Naaman goes to his king and says, there's a guy in Israel who can heal me. And so the king writes a letter to the king of Israel and says, here comes Naaman. We want you to heal him. And sends him with ten talents of silver, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to buy this healing, I guess, show his appreciation. So Naaman goes to the Israelite king and gives him this letter, and the king is distraught. He's going, I can't, I can't heal you. I, I've got nothing. Your king is just trying to pick a fight with me. He's trying to put me in a position, asking me to do something that I can't do, and then he's going to use the fact that I can't do it as a pretext for war. And Elisha, who's the prophet at the time, sends word to the king and says, don't worry about it. There's still a prophet in the land. Send him to me. So Naaman and his entourage go to Elisha's house. And Elisha doesn't even go outside. He sends a messenger outside. And he says to Naaman, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman's indignant. This is a rich man. This is a proud man. The Jordan River is filthy. And Naaman says, I'm not doing that. If you want me to dip in a river, we've got cleaner rivers back where I'm from. And some of his guys come to him and they say, Naaman, if he asks you to do something significant, if he asks you to do something difficult, if he asks you to do something heroic, you would have done it, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Then why won't you do this thing? So Naaman humbles himself. And he does what Elisha said. And he goes and he dips himself in the Jordan River seven times. And he comes up and he's clean. And he goes back to Elisha and says, I need some dirt. I need two wheelbarrows full of dirt. The idea is you can only worship a god on the dirt from the country he's connected with. So Naaman is saying, I want to worship Israel's God, so i got to bring some dirt from Israel back with me. And he says to Elisha, I've still got to go to the temple. My boss goes to this temple of this foreign God, and I've got to go, and he's old, and when he kneels down, I've got to kneel down too, because he leans on my arm. So forgive me for that, but no, I'm worshiping your God from now on. We have a guy who asks for grace, heal me, who receives grace. And that receiving, it looks like obedience. 
almost always. What is God asking you to do? That's what faith is trust. So it's taking that step of obedience. For our ten lepers, it's walking back to the priest, even though they're still physically leprous. For Naaman, it's dipping himself in a nasty Jordan River seven times. And then what we see in Naaman is he responds. He doesn't just receive the grace of God. He responds to it. He goes back and says, I'm going to start to worship this God now. We see it with our Samaritan leper. He responds to Jesus. He returns. He thanks him, praises God in a loud voice, and he falls on his face before him. You just thank God, and we're going to close with praising God in a loud voice. Worship team, y'all can come back. We're going to do two songs. And both of these songs are praise songs. And what I want you to do is I want you to praise God with a loud voice. For some of you, that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, and I want you to be okay. I want you to praise. I want, I want you to stretch with a loud voice. I want you to praise the Lord. If you want to fall on your face before him, there's no room. In your, you have to come up here and do that. That's fine. If you want to, come on. The floor is cleanish, so you can decide. You can eat some of the crumbs. From the communion, if you're still hungry. So, but what I want, seriously what I want, is I want you thinking about this God who you just thanked for these things that he did in your life. And you just gave us the top line. There's so many more things that you could thank him for. And now I want you to praise him with a loud voice because he's worth it. And Bo will dismiss us after this song. Let me pray one more prayer as you guys stay in. God, we thank you. As Chad said, we're made to worship. And I pray for each of us. That we would praise you with a loud voice this morning. Not because a loud voice or a quiet voice is better or worse. But because it's an appropriate response to who you are and to what you've done in our life. And I pray, God, that as we praise you, Lord, that we would sense your pleasure over us as well. In Jesus' name.